Vacation starts with VA. One thing you'll love about your trip to Virginia is that you'll never have to settle for one thing. All that you love is all in one trip. Start yours at virginia.org. Welcome to All About Agatha, the podcast dedicated to reading and ranking every single mystery novel written by the queen of crime, Dame Agatha Christie. I'm Kemper Donovan. I'm Catherine Broback. And this week we are discussing Tommy and Tuppence. Another story within the Partners in Crime collection, our last Tommy and Tuppence for a little bit. There's not a lot of Tommy and Tuppence to go around in the Christieverse, so we've done a fair amount. This shall be our last story until sometime further down the road. So let's enjoy this while it's still around and talk about The Crackler. That is the mm, title of our, crackler. of our current story. <laughs> Catherine Brobeck. Tell us a little bit about this delight. Well, The Crackler was first published in, guess what? The Sketch. The Sketch. November 19th, 1924. And it was not called The Crackler. It was instead called The Affair of the Forged Notes, which, let's be honest, probably a better name for this story. <laughs> yeah, we're not, not huge fans of the title, The Crackler. Although, to be fair to Christy and... The Beresfords, they themselves make fun of this Oh, title. Not, not Tommy. Only Tuppence does. Tommy is very, very <laughs> set true. on He's into the it. crackler. Yeah. He's into it. So let's talk about our victim. And as the alternate title may clue you in, this is not a murder mystery. This is a counterfeit case. Counterfeit currency is what's happening here. So I suppose the banking industry is... The victim, yeah. the, the populace at large, wh- whoever you believe might be the victim of a counterfeiting scheme, that is the victim here because there is a whole bunch of counterfeit currency flooding the market in London, and it appears to be streaming from posh society in the West End, and it has also been showing up across the Channel in France. En France. So, yeah, let's talk about our suspects and try to get to the bottom of this. Our major suspect is, in fact, a I major. You did that. I know you did. <laughs> major Laidlaw. He is a well to do gambler, particularly as it involves racing, as in horses. Mm-hmm. But he also, you know, does some cards and other stuff. Um, and he's, like, known for being pleasant and charming and in with all the right people. Again, the posh crowd. But he always seems to have kind of one eye on shadier side of gambling. Then there is his wife, Marguerite Ledlaw. She is charming and beautiful in French. Ooh mm. la la. And then there is, understandably, Marguerite's father, Monsieur Eulade. <laughs> yeah, no. <laughs> <laughs> but um, Monsieur Eulade, he is French, and I guess as a result of being French, suspicious. He also seems to spend a really weird amount of time hanging around the bright young things in London. Right. And those are really our only suspects, because this is what Inspector Marriott has set up. Those are the people that Scotland Yard is looking at, and that's why he wants Tommy and Tuppence involved. So... Right, although there is one more character of import within the story. 
Correct. Mr. Hank Ryder. He's not a suspect that is presented to Tommy and Tuppence as a suspect per se, but for a reader's purposes, I think you could argue that the final suspect is Mr. Hank Ryder, who is an do you, American... Do you, do you think that we're spoiling something, Kemper? Perhaps, but he's, he's an American gambler who hangs out with this set. Well, and in that case, there's also very handsome Captain Jimmy Faulkner, who mm-hmm. um, Tuppence has some eyes for. That is true. He's also a uh, rich, handsome gambler. This is a very flirty Tommy and Tuppence. They get their flirt on in this story. All right, let's talk about the world as it appears to be. Tommy and Tuppence, for once, are not failing at their job. They are actually feeling on top of the world because they have been actually doing well in some cases. Gee. (laughs) I know. And Tommy is so high about their success that he thinks they should expand offices so that they can put in some bigger bookcases. And there's a little bit of banter at the beginning of the story here that alerts us to who the author of Light Glancing Spoof (laughs) is going to be in this Christie short story. Again, in all the Partners in Crime stories, there is a fellow mystery author who she at least references in the story. Yeah, if not not a direct homage, then there's the spirit of it. Yeah, and our author here is Edgar Wallace. Mm -hmm. And let's pause and talk about Edgar Wallace for a second. He is an interesting personage because he is one of these people who was insanely prolific when he lived. And in the adaptation, there's even a joke made about the fact that he writes two books, one with each hand, and then dictates a third And that's how he has such great output. But there was a statistic that I was reading here. He wrote over 170 novels in his time. Again, to keep that in perspective, Agatha Christie wrote 66 and lived to a ripe old age. Edgar Wallace actually died in his 50s and wrote 170 novels. He wrote 12 of those novels in 1929 alone. Yes, I'm sure sure they were very high quality. You know, don't hate the player, (laughs) Catherine. Hate the game. (laughs) Or I guess, suppose you could hate both, but I mean I feel I feel comfortable saying that at that rate, and if he died at fifty, if the novel writing didn't kill him, like <laughs> he also wrote nearly a thousand short stories, nine hundred fifty-seven short stories. Um, um, have we considered that Edgar Wallace was on cocaine? Come on, for our anniversary. Doesn't it affect everybody different? We'll start small. This is just like licking the bowl after Mom makes chocolate cake. You'll be straight by the next bell. Come look, that whole trip's just not for me, okay? Sandy, don't be a bummer. It's no biggie. Are you sure it's okay? Trust me. Just call it an experiment. Well, I'm glad you're sane. Well, I'm glad we're all 
insane. <laughs> I mean, there were all of these conspiracy theories about the fact that he had ghostwriters or, you know, that it was some sort of a James Patterson situation where there were journeymen writing in the style of. But no, apparently he really did write by himself and he he did not like to edit a lot. He was not very much into revision, let's say. I'm so excited! I'm so excited! I'm so scared! And I believe he dictate he did in fact dictate a lot of his work, but he was popular at the time, but has not really stood the test of time, so this is one of those references that a little bit goes over our head as modern readers. The one other point about Edgar Wallace that I think will be interesting to our listeners is that he actually wrote what would eventually become the movie. Wait for it. King Kong, which came out one year after he died. King Kong came out in 1933 and he died in 1932. So he was never able to even appreciate the fruits of his labor because many see that as his crowning achievement. That and all of the cocaine he clearly did to write (laughs) them in his stories. (laughs) Oh, I'm glad we're all sane. I'm so excited. (laughs) (laughs) Like, I feel like someone needs to do a movie about the life and times of Edgar Wallace as a writer, and it's just like, it's a, and it should be animated. Right. It's like, this was pre-Adderall, so I only see one alternative here. That also, you know, it might be that he was that prolific that he had to die at 50, but it also might have been something else. Start small. This is just like licking the bowl after mom makes chocolate cake. Yeah. But, you know, 160 films have been made of his work. So- he has sold over 50 million copies of his combined works. So excited! In various editions, so let's give the man his due. Edgar Wallace, ladies and gentlemen. There's some references made to busies and noses, which I guess are types of people that he references in in his short stories, which Christy apparently had read. We haven't read Edgar Wallace, so just know that that is the mystery author who is being referenced in this story. The mystery author du jour. Du jour. Presumably because he has so many books, that's the reason that they have to put in the bigger bookcases in their offices. Right. That is like one of Tommy's big concerns, is that they just don't have big enough book cases for their Edgar Wallace collection. While they're discussing this, who shows up but Inspector Marriott? And he is going to give them a new case. And guess why? It's because they are bright young things. And he can't really put any of his stodgy Scotland Yard detectives on this because he needs people who will not be suspicious in these fashionable circles in the West End. And they're friends with Lawrence St. Vincent. Right, which is a reference to the affair of the Pink Pearl because that was Tuppence's initial scam case when they started playing detective. She rendered his now wife and, uh, you know, allowed her to get married. So they, uh, a shop girl has made good and is now part of genteel society and they seem to be fast friends as couples now with the St. Vincents who have this access to higher society. By the way, they're very excited by the fact that Inspector Marriott has come to visit and that this is an official Scott Nord case because apparently Edgar Wallace's stories all began in this sort of official way. The stories never had the context of domesticity or amateur sleuthing that Christie herself often had. So they feel like, yes, finally we have our Edgar Wallace case here. We're going to be able to do it. 
so yeah, Inspector Marriott wants them to use the St. Vincent's and get access to these posh circles where this counterfeit currency seems to be emanating from, and basically just to figure out who's putting the, the counterfeit currency into circulation. What Marriott wants them to do is go to these gambling clubs. And so they get to play dress up, which is very exciting because that's one of the things that they love to do. Tuppence in particular is like, yeah. So they go there and very quickly Tuppence starts flirting with the aforementioned handsome captain, Jimmy Faulkner. Mm -hmm. She's trying to make Tommy jealous by flirting with Captain Jimmy Faulkner because he is flirting with the very lovely and very French Marguerite. Mm hmm. They both keep getting these forged pills passed to them. And Marriott, by the way, taught them how to identify that they were forgeries in five minutes, yes. it is noted in the story. We don't exactly know what they learned in those five minutes, but it just, it just took mean, five I, minutes. I do have to say, if it only takes Tommy and Tuppence five minutes to learn how to identify counterfeit money, I feel like they could have a wide range of job offers. They could have parlayed this into something much bigger if they only had their sights set on broader horizons. But alas. <laughs> alas. Alas, they did not. And so, so, yeah. yeah so most of the bills seem to be coming from the lovely Marguerite. Unfortunately mm. for Tommy, I guess. In the meanwhile, the person who seems to be getting hurt the most by all this is the aforementioned American named Hank Ryder, who is a big gambler and whose winnings are being turned down at the bank because too high a percentage of the bills that he's bringing into the bank are counterfeit. So his solution for this is just to gamble more and get super drunk and complain about it to Tommy. Yeah. And I mean, he's not losing all of his money, but he's taking a pretty high loss. It's like, I think close to 25% or something like that of his bills are being now reported at the bank that they are counterfeit. That's a pretty big gambling loss, even if you're having a good night. Mm -hmm. So on an especially drunken evening, Tommy finds Hank outside of this posh gambling den, and Hank is uh, not sober, to say the least. There's a lot of drunk lisping that's written in the story at this point. Like, (laughs) wobbling, holding on. He's like, this is not a hat stand. And Tommy's like, quite right. It is not. So, yeah, he tells his sob story to Tommy about Marguerite taking him for a ride, both figuratively and literally, as it turns out, because they did, in fact, take an actual ride to Whitechapel, where Mm -hmm. Marguerite took all of his money. And Tommy's like, ooh, Whitechapel, you say? I want to go to there. So (laughs) Tommy puts him in a car. The wind's blowing on his face. Hank becomes slightly less intoxicated, enough to tell Tommy where Marguerite took him. Um, and pr- somewhat impressively, and, by the way. Yeah, well, and perhaps this should be our first inkling that all is not as it seems with Hank Ryder, but he does seem to sober up pretty quickly for how yeah, drunk he, can, he was. Yeah, he can give the turn left here, turn right here. Oh, that door looks familiar. Yeah, I mean, I'll be honest, I couldn't do that stone cold sober, so. I can <laughs> oh, I can't. I have a terrible sense of direction. Pre-Google Maps, I used to carry around a map with me. Oh, did you carry around the old binders? What's it called? The, the Thomas Boston? Guide? Yeah, the Thomas Guide. Oh, it's, it's the best referencing Clueless. Just look Murray. at the top of the map. Okay. Sun Valley is north. No. All I see is Bel Air, okay? Then Just you're on the wrong map. Just, I'm all right, not look, on the Look at the number map. on the top. What is the number on there the top of the map? There are no numbers on the top. There's letters. Oh! 
Those oh, Thomas I totally guides, had a Thomas guide. Those Thomas guides are great. Actually, I still do. It's still in the trunk of my car, just in case. Just in case there's an apocalypse. I have my water. I have my cash. And you have your Thomas guide? And I have my Thomas guide, so I'm good to go. I think for all of our London listeners, it's a little bit like a Los Angeles A to Z. Yeah. It's, well, it's exactly it's exa- it's exactly It's exactly that. what it is. <laughs> That's yeah. exactly what it is. <laughs> so Hank Ryder and Tommy arrive in Whitechapel. They park. Ryder points out the door that he thinks is the one that Marguerite led him through. But just to make sure that they're they're safe and they don't lose their way, Tommy thinks that they should mark it with a cross at the bottom. And he references a fairy tale where, you know, a similar marking is made to denote, um, I believe, a tree within a forest. If it's the fairy tale I'm thinking of, and I can't imagine there's more than one fairy tale that has that sort of an idea in it, where they put like a handkerchief around a tree to denote like where they bury gold, I believe. Anyway, so cross is made, Tommy goes inside. Hank Ryder hears noise that's suspicious. And so he sends Tommy on in by himself, even though Hank Ryder's brought him there to retrieve Mm -hmm. his own money. So maybe signal number one there. If, in fact, signal number one was not previously the fact that Hank suspiciously knew exactly where they were going. And was suddenly way soberer than he Mm, should have been able to be, yeah. Tommy goes in by himself and all the lights turn on and all of a sudden he is surrounded by what appear to be career criminals and also a counterfeiting hothouse. And so uh, he is in the (laughs) middle of this criminal enterprise by himself. And then, you know, immediately thereafter, Hank walks in who, you know. Yeah, Hank, who is way more sober now, even than he was in the car. Totally sober. Totally sober. Does not think anything is a hat stand. Hank Ryder has been the criminal mastermind all along, so it wasn't the French. It was the Americans. Cause or the American. He doesn't Indeed. have to he doesn't have to stand for all of us. Especially with his like exaggerated southern accent. Yeah, this is another uh Christism. Right. At least his name is fairly under control. It's not there it's not a totally ridiculous American name. No, it's true. They're gonna tie up Tommy and hold him there. And Tommy's all like wah ha. Yeah, he's like, Well, but they, you know, they're gonna know where we are because I did that cross and Hank Ryder's like, Oh no, 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 because I read the end of that fairy tale too. And what did they do at the end of that fairy tale? They marked everything. They marked all the trees in the forest, so no one knew which one it was. So he said he has his henchmen putting little crosses on all of the doors up and down the street. Except so no double, one is going to know where Tommy is. double mwahaha. Three seconds later, there's a knock on the door. <gasps> and Who is it? It's Albert and Inspector Marriott. What? I know. Who would have thunk it? Saving the day, because guess what? Double Tommy twist. Did. Tommy did put a put a cross on the door, but while he was doing that, he also poured valerian all over the pavement, which apparently is a very attractive scent for cats. Which I guess he just knew that there were a ton of cats in Whitechapel, which he magically was going to because I guess he knew that. I, you could argue that he, he guessed that the headquarters of this counterfeit currency scheme or would be in a bad neighborhood and bad neighborhoods tend to have feral cats in them so he just carries around like a little vial of valerian that's part of his plan that's tommy tommy thought ahead he's like a chess master he's always like five steps oh hey listen this is some hardcore foresight here tommy is actually a genius in this because the level of steps ahead he is it would be impressive for any detective. It would be far more than we've ever seen Monsieur Poirot do. 
<laughs> so he knew that it was Hank all along because he obviously did all this planning. Here's my problem. I'm not exactly sure how your, he knew your that it was one, Hank. Your one problem? <laughs> I'm not exactly sure how he knew that it was Hank, and we're never really given that information in the story. <laughs> at any point. Nor are we ever alerted how he alerts Albert and Inspector Marriott. Also not yeah. in the story. But, you know, in the end... <laughs> Because Inspector Marriott is there, Scotland Yard catches the bad guys, and Tommy's like, okay, I gotta go, because I think Tuppence is probably still flirting with Jimmy Faulkner, and now that we're off the case, that I'm nipping that in the bud. And oh, that's the yeah. end of the story. He's, he's super, well, he's basically like, gotta go home to my faithful wife, if in fact she's still faithful. Right. But said with that wink, debonair wink. flair of Tommy with the little twinkle in his eye. That's yeah. James Warwick's interpretation, anyway. Well, I mean, you know, if I were Tuppence and... If Tommy were such a mastermind that he magically alerts all of these people and plans 17 steps ahead, I mean, gosh, what woman could resist that? The adaptation does improve upon certain elements of the story in that we are at least given this sequence in which Tuppence makes a call to Marriott investigating hotel bills. And we find out later that she was specifically investigating Hank Ryder's hotel bills to see if they had been paid with a lot of counterfeit currency. Because I suppose those bills not being attached to the gambling concern would attach him to the whole counterfeiting conspiracy more securely. But the the other thing that's never really explicitly said in this, which is like kind of stupid, is that the reason why they're doing it in the gambling den is because they're laundering the money. Right. And so, uh, you know, there are all these casual exchanges of currency and it's really never explicitly said about how they're doing that. But that's why Hank Ryder is like in with all these people. It's all of these sort of flirtatious connections that are happening in that club. He's just trying to get the money out. He's just trying, He's trying to, get to get it, it literally into out circulation. of his pocket. Yeah. yeah. She was looking more into just all of the ways in which he was giving anyone money and tightening the noose around him that way. It still doesn't really address the issue of why she suspected him specifically, but at least we see something layered in there as to how they zeroed in on Hank Ryder. There's yeah. also, they, they do a lot more with the flirtation, and as always, one of the best things that this series has going for it is the chemistry between its two leads. And mm-hmm. there is a lot of heavy flirting that goes on between the two of them, including one scene in the middle where they're both drunk and it is very very flirty in an adorable way between a husband and wife and I oh my favorite li- my favorite line if we're talking about the same scene is that he's still trying to work on the case and that Tuppence is a little bit drunk or a mm-hmm. lot drunk yeah and she's trying to get him into the bedroom it would appear yes. and yes. he's still trying to do work Tuppence hmm Concentrate on this bit. Mm-hmm. These dart notes are all new and crisp, so they can't have been fondled, handled by very many people. Mm. Drink your chocolate, darling. While it's hot. <laughs> and she has his like she has her arm like down his chest, and it's yeah, very like dangling. Charming. Yeah, it's all very it's 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 sexy between a husband and wife, which is not something that you see every day. No, it's TV. not. I mean, and they're they're very flirty, and it's very cute. Yeah, I, I appreciated that. I wasn't sure why Major Ludlaw had to be blind in the adaptation. I thought that was an odd decision. You got me. I couldn't tell you. But otherwise, extremely faithful. Dialogue lifted right from the story, as always, because Christy is a master, and they didn't have to change much. 
they have more familiarity with the scene in the adaptation than they really do in the short story. Yeah, well, in the connection, they don't they don't use the St. Vincent as a, as a connection. They use it's, the Ledlaws. The Ledlaws are connected through a relation of mm-hmm. Tommy's or something. Yeah, something like, like that. Like a cousin or something like yeah. that. So it's a little bit more... Yeah, it's like they they're it's tangential, but it's tangential in their actual lives. Yeah, and although weirdly enough, makes almost less sense than if it had been Sin Vincent. I agree. Yeah, no, I agree. Actually, I like the, I like in the story that they're kind of going out of their regular elements, but it does allow Tuppence to wear some fantastic outfits, which they also make a big show of. Oh she, well, in in this in the aforementioned scene where she is trying to lure her beloved husband into the boudoir mm-hmm. she's wearing an extremely fancy robe which i was with a little the tassels bit oh with the tassels yeah and it has three it's the middle tassel it has three tassels one on each side of her body and then one down the middle and it's like the yeah the the three tassels are pretty fantastic and tommy's a little bit like where did you get that and she's like well i you know it's part of the money that Marriott gave us so that we might blend in with this crowd. And Tommy is very much like, well, at the club. And she's like, well, I need to, you know, I need to dress for the part holistically. Just to, like really get into the character. It's all very charming. It's very charming. And it's a great robe. I highly recommend that people look at that robe. And then from our last Tommy and Tuppence, her coat, when she's pretending to be a Russian ballerina. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Just like There's also Mark. a headdress. There's a headdress in this episode with a, a kind of peaked fascinator that mm, is, yes. it, it sort of defies description. You just have to see it. Yes. I would say it. that the, um, the, for what they lacked in their, you know, lighting and cinematography and possible set design budgets in Partners in Crime, mm-hmm. they made up for in Tuppence's wardrobe. <laughs> they really did. They really <laughs> did. Did we even talk about why it is called the Crackler? We did not, other than the fact that it's Tommy who wants it called that. But why is it called the Crackler, Catherine? Because Tommy thinks that very fresh bills make a crackling sound. And he likes Um, the idea of a a catchy name for the culprit. And he wants to have created it. He doesn't want to use, like, some ham-fisted cliche of a name for a counterfeiter. He wants to have invented this in his in the in the mystery novel that he's making in his own head. Tuppence has the far more reasonable suggestion that you could call it the rustler, which mm-hmm. would make far more sense. It would also be less horrifying than the crackler. But <laughs> the only thing that I would say against the adaptation, I know that I mentioned this before, is that Tuppence is almost always brighter in the short stories than she is in the adaptation. I guess. I mean, we, and we argued about this too. I think, I still think that Tommy is fast on his feet. Tuppence is more cerebral for sure. She's clever. Tommy's not clever, but he has good instincts and not just physical instincts. He's fast on his feet, even in a mental way that often gets them out of scrapes in the stories in Christie's originals. In the adaptation, they kind of wash away a lot of those differences in the nuances because they're such a good team that they just kind right. of work hand-in-hand hand together. But I, however you interpret what their particular strengths are, I agree with you that their differences, which are a big part of the fun of their characters in the originals, mm-hmm. that certainly does not survive onto the small screen. No, it doesn't. 
But, you know, I can I can kind of overlook some of it just for her clothes. It makes me very superficial. Absolutely. There's not that much more to say about the Crackler, but I think in some ways it's a quintessential Tommy and Tuppence story because it's light, it's diverting, it's charming. It has no clues in it. It is not a puzzle in any way whatsoever. But no. it's hard to hate it. No, it's likable. You know, yeah. you know what it's a lot like? It falls in this place between the mystery Tommy and Tuppence and the, the suspense Tommy and Tuppence in Partners in Crime, mm-hmm. which we have not been talking about some of those for obvious reasons. Mm-hmm. But it's straddling that line. And so... Meaning, like, the interstitial thriller stories that we decided to skip over within the Partners in Crime Correct. collection. Yeah, this one, uh, pulling back the veil a little bit on the podcast, I was very much on the fence as to whether we should even cover this one because it so much is a thriller and not a mystery that right. it almost doesn't feel appropriate to cover. But, you know, it's Tommy and Tuppence. Gotta love them. Yeah, and I think it's a it's it's a good distillation of them. Yeah, as a Christie creation, agreed. And I think an appropriate place to end our Tommy and Tuppence exploration for now and for the time being. Yeah, and to end this episode. Join us next week for Miss Marple, who we have not seen in a while. The blue geranium is the next Miss Marple short story in the second half of The 13 Problems, which are the next short stories that are often compiled with the Tuesday Night Club, and we already covered all six of those. So just a little heads up on that. We've got some Miss Marple coming our way very, very soon. And in the meantime, we would love, of course, for you to contact us and tell us anything. Um, you could email us at allaboutthedame at gmail.com or find us on Twitter at allaboutthedame or Catherine at Brobcat. We are on Facebook. Our Facebook page is All About Agatha, and we're on Instagram at All About Agatha. And we love getting ratings and reviews from our listeners because. It's fascinating and makes us feel good and also helps out the podcast. So please take a moment to do that wherever you are listening to this. And we will talk to you next time. Bye. Bye.